disabled people can flourish as much as an abled person can, as long as abled people don't get in the way. Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Morgan Coburn, a graduate student at the University of California, Irvine, who is currently studying the role of human microglia, or resident immune cells, in Alzheimer's disease. Beyond her academic pursuits, she is an active member of the SciComm community, volunteering with UCI's Center for Learning and Memory, and co-chairing a program called the Brain Explorers Academy, in the hopes of getting elementary and middle schoolers excited about the brain, about research, and science as a whole. She also advocates for affordable insulin with T1 International, and as an individual in STEM with type 1 diabetes, a chronic invisible illness, I hope to speak with her today about her journey, her research, and how ableism in STEM influences her day-to-day life. But let's start from the very beginning. Morgan, what's your story? So I was, should I do my um, diabetes story or my STEM story first? We'll start with your STEM story and then we can, or, or actually, which one do you prefer? We can start with your diabetes story. I actually think that the diabetes and the STEM kind of are intertwined. Perfect. Um, yeah, when I was, so I was diagnosed when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And when you're diagnosed, you are brought into the hospital. You kind of don't know what's going on. There's a lot of tubing attached to you. And you kind of get thrown into the medical world. Mm. So, and as a kid, I was very, always very curious and like, nature like my favorite books and tv shows were like national geographic mm-hmm. um so somehow being in the hospital all the time with all these doctors was like kind of like a fun and interesting experience for me mm. um <laughs> despite being you know diagnosed um so so from that point I was like okay I'm gonna be a doctor and then I realized like I, I don't want to be a doctor <laughs> old as an as, as I got older yeah. um I I learned more about um research and I took like AP biology and psychology classes in um, high school and kind of learned biology, loved biology and then learned psychology and was like, wait, there's like this little piece called neuroscience. What is that? Mm -hmm. Um, And decided that is what I wanted to study. So I um, applied for college. I applied for early decision at one school because I really wanted to go to Mount Holyoke College. Mm-hmm. which is a tiny all-women's college on the East Coast. Where exactly is that? It's in Western Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. So I got in and started taking more science and neuroscience classes. And what really drove home my research interests is I took this neuropharmacology class. And there is this project that we had to do, pick a compound that modulates someone's brain or behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was in a um, research lab that was studying maternal immune activation in autism spectrum disorders mm-hmm. um, and models of that. Um, and I found out about this drug called minocycline. It's a pretty dirty drug is what they're called. They have like a lot of um, off target effects. Um, mm-hmm. But it basically will inactivate microglia inflammation. So when they're in an active state, minocycline will kind of dampen down that activation state Mm -hmm. and as I was taking this class I like doing this project I realized that this drug like beyond it's just a it's a tricyclic antibiotic beyond its antibiotic functions it was also having this 
there were like several studies that showed that it was having this really interesting um, effect with people having like a psychiatric illness, like schizophrenia, and it okay. would help modulate. <laughs> I'm getting really into this. No worries. Um, yeah. So minocycline would help modulate the depressive symptoms that um, people with schizophrenia experience. Mm-hmm. And many drugs don't do that. Most of the drugs that are used for schizophrenic patients affect positive symptoms. And those, of course, are very important. Positive being the the symptoms that are added on to their experience. So mm-hmm. hallucinations, delusions, depressive being symptoms that remove from their experience. So apathy, depression, um, catatonia, mm-hmm. things like that. So I, I found it really interesting that no one was studying this. And like, why aren't people looking into the inflammatory system in the brain? For so long, we've mm-hmm. said the brain is immune privilege. Like, there must be something going on. <laughs> so with that, um, I applied for graduate school, like very convinced I'm going to study um, neuroimmunity, this like kind of new field. that It's mm-hmm. absolutely exploding right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know everyone's but- doing microglia at this point. <laughs> Yes, especially in like Alzheimer's disease, which is where I study it at UCI. Mm-hmm. So I found um, my boss, um, Dr. Blurton Jones, was um, just beginning to apply his um, new in vitro differentiation model to new systems. So as a young grad student, I basically jumped in and started a project. So I was transplanting these IPSC microglia induced pluripotent stem cell microglia mm-hmm. into the brains of very young pups and then they will migrate differentiate populate the whole mouse brain and as mouse ages you have a human innate immune system um, within this mouse and this is really useful so when i when i analyze it it's about 80 percent chimerism and we're actually getting it better with different um genetic mouse models um but it allows us to look at the human microglial genetic response mm-hmm. in a mouse, which what we've learned is, um, and other people in the field have learned that the way that mouse microglia and human microglia respond to a stimuli, like an amyloid beta plaque, for instance, mm-hmm. it will look very similar on the surface level. So mm-hmm. as far as like microglial activation. Mm. But when you look at the genes, there's like a significant um, genetic divergence between rodents and humans. And of course yeah. that makes sense. But yeah, yeah it, it, it turns out that like a lot of these microglial genes um, that are different are significantly implicated in Alzheimer's disease. So, and many people don't maybe know this, but we, we've all heard of um, the genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Most of them are in microglia most of them are enriched in microglia. So it, it's almost like this disease is, is being driven and being modulated by microglia. Mm-hmm. Of course, there is the neuronal component, um, but there's certain genes that will influence your um, risk of developing it as much as APOE, for instance, APOE44. Mm-hmm. If you have a mutation in a specific microglial gene called TREM2, mm-hmm. um, that is about the same risk as having one APOE4. Wow, is the risk that high? I was not familiar with that. Yeah, TREM2, um, the R47H mutation, yeah. mm-hmm. um, the risk converts 
to about one APOE allele. And APOE is expressed in microglia too. Yes. Oh yeah, very much so. For my own curiosity, are you using mouse models of amyloidosis and then adding in these iPSC microglia? Um, yeah, so we use the 5X animal, which okay. um, it just has overproduction of amyloid. Um, and that was kind of the first model we tried it out in, and it worked beautifully. Mm. Now, and these mice also, I will say, are immunodeficient because we are transplanting human cells. So, yeah. of course, you can't have the mouse's immune system rejected. And that mm. comes with its own problems, caveat to the model. You mentioned as you first talked about your foray into STEM about possibly wanting to go into medicine and be a doctor. What turned you off from that? I feel like so many people that I speak to dabbled in the idea of becoming a clinician and everyone has a different answer as to why they decided it wasn't for them. What's your answer? When I was young, I had like a good amount of social anxiety. Mm. Um, Same here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I- I, it's funny, grad school came along and I'm like, I love people now. Um, mm. But yeah, as, as I was young, I kind of realized like, I don't really, I don't really know how I would do talking to patients. And if I'm interested in neuroscience too, how devastating would that be to be the one responsible for saying, for telling patients and family members, you mm. have Alzheimer's disease, you have right. Parkinson's, yeah. you know, we don't have we don't really have good solutions for really most neurological disorders and they mm-hmm. have devastating side effects. So I think that was part of it. Um, I realized that in neuroscience, you have to deal with really devastating diagnoses. The other side is research is kind of the cure to that, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As scientists, we can explore these questions that are still unanswered and empower doctors to heal in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that aspect of it. And it's, it's fun. I like being in lab. I like handling the rodents. And yeah, um, I like doing immunohistochemistry. Um, and I like imaging and mm-hmm. all the various little things you'll get into in lab. What does a day in the life for you work, look like where you're dealing with animal work, you're also doing things in the lab, And if you can mention it, some of the work that you're doing outside of the lab, too, that seems to keep you quite busy as well. Yeah. So right now things have changed um, because we are in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, And I am immunocompromised. So I basically spent most of my time working from home, Mm. um, which has been very sad for me. Oh. (laughs) But... (laughs) But um, I guess pre-pandemic, I would get into lab, um, you know, check on my mice. Typically, we do these long aging experiments because we're working with Alzheimer's disease. So I transplant the day they're born or the day or so after they're born and we mm-hmm. let them age three, six, nine months. Um, so oftentimes I don't even need to do rodent work that day. Mm. Um, I will do some imaging, some immunochemistry, lots of reading, um, and planning for future experiments because uh, the length of these experiments are so, I guess they're not quite that long, but they're Mm. months long. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to stagger them so I can be doing something all the time. Mm -hmm. But now basically I'm 
um, working on job applications. I have taken several courses to increase my knowledge of pedagogy, which is the practice of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that has become more interesting to me. I think in grad school, you're being taught how to do the science part and mm-hmm. not necessarily the teaching part. You do mm-hmm. TA, but oftentimes TA is grading. Yeah. Um, UCI has this really amazing um, DTEI, which is the uh, Department of Education Excellence and Innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So they teach you about how to teach a compelling course, essentially, and how to use research because there is pedagogical research Mm-hmm. to inform how you teach. So what is research peer-reviewed backed um, ways of teaching students in, in ways that will be compelling and interesting and keep them excited about school. Um, they're really, really fun courses. I got interested in pedagogy after volunteering with the Center for Learning and Memory at UCI. I did want to go back to something that you talked about briefly, the fact that you are immunocompromised and COVID has taken over the world at this point. I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk about what type 1 diabetes is, if you don't mind. Yeah, Yeah. so type 1 diabetes is a chronic autoimmune disease. That means that your um, immune system looked at your beta cells in your pancreas, which produce insulin, and said, I don't like you anymore. I'm going <laughs> to kill you. <laughs> mm. So basically, I have um, a mm, partially functioning organ. Um, right. I don't produce insulin or amylin, something people don't talk about. That's a satiety hormone. Okay. Does that mean you don't feel hungry? I do feel hungry. I know some type 1 diabetics do experience that um, symptom, though. It's not okay. the only only way we experience satiety. Okay. So or maybe I just have been diagnosed so long they don't notice it anymore. Mm. But yeah, insulin is really the big one because yeah. insulin is kind of like the the bridge for glucose to get into your cells. So if mm-hmm. you don't have insulin, your body can't metabolize glucose. And of course, glucose is the main thing we metabolize. That's how we get our energy, ATP, all of that, glycolysis, Mm -hmm. (laughs) going back to intro bio. Um, (laughs) So if you, (laughs) if you don't have um, that insulin, you, instead of um, metabolizing glucose, you will metabolize fats. And that is called ketosis. Many people Mm -hmm. have heard of the keto diet. That's what you're trying for. In diabetes, your ketosis turns into ketoacidosis, where you have metabolized so many ketones that your blood has turned into acid and Mm -hmm. that can be a very deadly condition for people and maybe we'll get back into that um because i want to explain the difference between type 1 diabetes which is what i have and type 2 diabetes Mm -hmm. which i think a lot of people confuse with type 1 yeah um i get a lot oh yeah my uncle has that he was just diagnosed i'm like there is late onset diabetes, type 1 diabetes, but I don't think we have the same thing. Type 2 diabetes is more like you, your body doesn't produce or your pancreas does not produce enough insulin for your body. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be careful in saying there's a lot of stigma in type 2 diabetes. Yeah. And it makes me very sad to see people disregard type 2 diabetics as you did this to yourself. Mm-hmm. Type 2 diabetes is very genetic. 
and mm -hmm. the amount of so socioeconomic factors that play into what you what food you have access to it makes me very sad when people say mean things to type 2 diabetics because they are suffering as much as the type 1 diabetics mm -hmm. I agree. um so yeah so I, it, it basically is a, a situation where your body doesn't make enough insulin. Part mm -hmm. of that can be insulin resistance. The foods that you eat can affect how well insulin is signaling in your body. So if you eat a lot of fatty foods, that can lead to insulin resistance. That would mean basically per, we'll say per apple, you would need way more insulin to cover the apple if you're very resistant to, to insulin, if that makes sense. Yeah, got it. That makes sense. I wanted to know how type 1 diabetes affects your day-to-day -day life because obviously the pandemic is a very strange period of time and I'd love you for you to touch upon that a bit more how that affects you going to the store to pick up things or have you been able to see your family at all as restrictions are starting to lighten up and then just to juxtapose that with how it affected your day-to-day -day life in the lab before the pandemic started. Yeah. So basically all day I'm thinking about diabetes. It wakes me up in the morning some days or it puts me to bed very late at night because I'm up watching my blood sugar. Um, so because of that, sometimes I get a later start than I like to. Um, being in science, we do have my my lab especially has a pretty flexible come in when you want, get your work done, leave whenever mm -hmm. you want. So I would roll into lab, you know, 1030 or so and um that was never really a problem mm. as far as the pandemic i basically haven't gone to a grocery store i get all my food delivered mm. i wear i'm very careful to wear a mask wash my hands i have seen my family a couple times but from a distance yeah i've been basically totally isolating myself since march 19th or whatever day Wow. Um, and I have a partner, so he and I will see each other because he's doing basically the same thing um, mm. for me. Um, and I have a roommate as well. So it's not total social isolation. But okay. yeah, I don't go into lab as much and partially because California has been we've had like a pretty bad resurgence. It's been very frustrating as someone with a chronic illness to watch the rest of the world kind of say, ah, whatever. Mm, I know. I can only imagine. Yeah, I'm just gonna go. It's just one drink. Like, I'm just gonna yeah. go to the bar. Like, I'm healthy. Ooh, that one makes me so mad. Yeah. I'm healthy. It doesn't matter. That basically yeah. tells me your life doesn't matter because you're disabled, you're chronically ill. Yeah, I mean, what you were talking about with people saying, well, I'm healthy, I can do whatever I want, is just the description of ableism. And that's not only pervasive and north american society because i don't think canadians are absolved of that but i think it's also pervasive in stem <laughs> yes and has is that something that you've noticed not necessarily in your lab but in the science community in the stem community that you're a part of yes definitely i think and partially i was part of that ableist community because i have a invisible illness and mm. For a while, it was something I just put in the back of my brain mm. um, and dealt with it, but never really like embraced it as part of myself. Um, so I lived my life as though I was not chronically ill, and that is a problem mm. um, and became a problem in STEM when I was 
essentially working myself in and out of the ER and urgent care. Oh my Um, goodness. Yeah. (laughs) I got to a point where I was having these recurrent kidney infections. Um, Mm -hmm. Your kidneys are responsible for titrating the partially responsible for titrating the amount of glucose in your blood and removing it from your blood into your urine. And they can only really titrate that amount of blood over or under 180 milligrams per deciliter. Mm. So if your blood sugar is consistently high, which mine was because I was in the lab all day, I had gloves on and I just slowly, it was my control was slipping away from me Mm. as I was working harder and harder in lab. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever had a kidney infection, but those are exceptionally painful. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So I was in and out of ER and urgent care and kind of started to realize, like, I am killing myself. Mm-hmm. My A1C, which is a measure of your average glucose, essentially over three-month period, um, mm. was higher than it ever had been. And I didn't know why. I'd never re- I hadn't really changed my diet. Or mm-hmm. I was walking three miles a day, essentially, to work and back. But oh, wow. not paying attention at work was leading me to have these health um, concerns. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people in STEM put their mind first. They mm. put their brain over their body. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. they will. And science, I think, is very divorced from your human person. We give accolades to the scientists that have worked their bodies into the ground, essentially. It's it's a good thing if you're in lab from 11 to 11, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, or even before that, you know, all day, all night. And, and if you aren't doing that, that is not you doing enough. Mm-hmm. And that's just, it's accepted in STEM that that's the kind of work mentality you need to have to be one of these really impressive scientists and people will praise the mind and meanwhile let their bodies suffer. I wonder how many people throughout their grad career and into faculty have let their health slip away from them while they focus on science. And that it's just so sad for me, you know, it's so sad for me to watch these incredible scientists and let their health be low on the totem pole of Mm. what they find important as someone that does not have great health I do have great health but my health is in flux with how I treat it basically Mm. it's very responsive which means that perhaps striking a good work-life balance is I wouldn't say more important but it's at the forefront of your thoughts and your plans for the day or the week would you say that that is the case Definitely. Um, Okay. What balance do you think you've been able to strike, especially since you did spend a considerable amount of time in the ER? What do you think you learned and have implemented now? I think it was kind of funny. I started making these changes maybe two months before the pandemic changed. Okay. So I don't know if I really have figured out the best work-life balance in STEM. Mm. because things kind of all shut down for me and my health has improved tremendously in this time where that's 
basically been my main priority. Mm-hmm. However, I started forgiving myself if I needed to go home early. Sometimes working really hard in the morning and um, not paying attention to my morning blood sugars leads to an end of day that is not very fun. Mm-hmm. My last question for you, do you have any words of wisdom for perhaps a graduate student who's just starting out or maybe even if a graduate student who might be in the position that you're in where you have a chronic invisible illness and just needs a, a few words to get them through the, through the day, something they can think of and something they can remember when things get a little bit tough? Yeah, that's a hard one because STEM is really unfriendly to people with chronic illness and disability. Mm. For diabetes, most people have accepted it in their mind as an okay chronic illness, which, and I say that in order to illustrate that like chronic illness, there is no hierarchy of chronic Mm. illness or disability. You know, everyone has experiences like pros and cons to it. It's really finding a good mentor that will understand or at least try to empathize with you. And finding a community online or Mm. in person is so important. And you'd say that would mostly be over Twitter? Or do you think that there are resources that people are not entirely familiar with that they could perhaps utilize? Yeah, there are. So... Every community I've seen, I'm, of course, mostly involved in the type 1 diabetes community. Um, Mm. Twitter's a really great spot. So is Instagram and, like, TikTok has, like, funny, relatable videos. Yeah. Um, (laughs) We have, like, a Discord chat. um, And, uh, yeah, I think Twitter's really great because it's kind of, like, stream of consciousness, but you can also find your people pretty easily. Mm. For people that are interested in disability and STEM, there are Twitter accounts. There's um, Disabled in STEM is really great. Chronically Invisible in STEM is a wonderful account. A lot of people are speaking about their experiences um, dealing with their disability in science. And a lot of the times it's not positive. Mm. There are positivities, but people with chronic illness, disability, get gaslit all the time. They aren't believed. If you need accommodation, they aren't accommodated until after the issue has happened. Mm, So people will say, oh, you're going to take advantage of the system. And then they fail, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then retroactively, okay, now we have to fix this. Whereas if you take a moment, listen, work with a student trying to understand what is going on, and how you can accommodate them. I think disabled people can flourish as much as an abled person can, as long as abled people don't get in the way. 